This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Craig Challen, Richard Harris, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thanks. So these two uh, fellows are here today to talk about their new book, Against All Odds, um, an amazing account of an incident that many people will remember. So let me introduce you. Dr Richard Harris and Dr Craig Challen were responsible for helping to save the 12 Thai boys and their soccer coach stuck in the Shanghai flooded caves in 2018. Whilst the world was glued to their TV screens for the entire 18 days, watching the disaster play out, Richard and Craig had a more proactive response, which led them to be recognised internationally as heroes. They won a joint 2019 Australian of the Year Award for their heroic efforts, as well as both being awarded the Star of Courage for unwavering and selfless bravery. (laughs) Richard is an anaesthetist and a specialist in aeromedical retrieval, I don't even know what that is. He has 30 years diving experience and a history of participating in rescue missions and expansive cave exploration. In 2017, he was awarded the Australasian Technical Diver of the Year Award. Richard worked on sedating the children in order to prevent them becoming distressed during their removal from the caves. Craig has also been awarded the Australasian Technical Diver of the Year Award in 2009 and has dived some of the deepest wrecks and set new depth records. Now retired, Craig previously worked as a veterinary surgeon. Craig assisted with the medical checkups in the deepest part of the cave. So as I said, they're both here together to talk about their book, I've Already Got Goosebumps Against All Odds, which details their experience with the rescue. I mean, just such a remarkable story. Why was it, do you think, that it captured the hearts of so many people? Why were we glued to this story? I think it was the story? perfect recipe for an amazing story. Uh, it involved children. Uh, they were thought to be lost and perished initially until they were found nine days after they disappeared. And then once they were found, um, it seemed that the, the, the possibility of rescuing them was essentially hopeless. It seemed there was no chance. And then finally, when they did start to be rescued, they appeared one by one over over several days and, and, you know, drew in people from all around the world to watch this incredible thing unfold. So, you know, you couldn't write a better Hollywood script. You couldn't. So, Craig, tell me about the boys. How did they get there? So the boys had been to soccer training on the Saturday afternoon and it was one of the boys' birthdays, so they decided that they'd just go off and have a bit of an adventure in celebration of that and went into this cave, which is something that kids do quite frequently. Tourists go into this cave all the time. 
Um, so well, there wasn't a danger sign, do not enter, and they entered? There was one that said do not enter between July and November. Right. But this was on June 23rd. So it was outside the time that was generally thought to be dangerous. Right. They went in and got to where they were going, were on their way back out again, and they found the cave had flooded in front of them. They couldn't get out. And was that because of rising tides? Uh, because of the... It had been raining up in the hills, but they didn't right. know about that, where they'd come from down on the, the flats below the hills. Right. And so the, the cave is the main conduit for drainage from those hills. Once they fill up with water and this river starts flowing out of the cave and that's what they came to. Right. So, Richard, maybe you could answer this for me. I mean, how was it that you two came to be working on this? Was it were you watching it or you're seeing it on the news and then yeah, we've we've been following the the story in the media like most people, I guess. And from Australia, yeah, from Australia. Initially, had been little snippets in the newspaper, and you know, there's some boys lost in a cave in Thailand, and we heard that some British divers had gone over there and it turns out there are two guys that we know quite well, Rick Stanton and John Valanthan. Yep. Uh, we've done several previous cave diving expeditions with Rick in particular. Yep. And so I started communicating with Rick and just saying that, you know, we're here if you need more help and let us know how you're going. And he was telling us how appalling the whole thing was and how bleak it looked for any, you know, chance of finding these children alive. Was that because the water was rising so quickly? Yeah, so this this cave is in the middle of, of Thailand. It's a long way from the coast, but it's influenced by these monsoon rains which fall on the mountains behind. And once it reaches a critical saturation of water, suddenly the water appears up through the floor and down one of the side branches of the cave. And that caught the kids unaware. So did you think then that maybe you should start, you know, packing your bags and... Well, we were... How how was it that you two came to do it together? Yeah, so after the boys were found on day nine by Rick and John, uh, the... Then it became a real possibility that we would be required for a rescue. We've got some background in in training in this kind of for this kind of event. Yeah. And because of our connection with Rick, we thought there is a real chance that we might get asked to go and help. And we continued to keep in touch with Rick and, and offer our services. And then, on that day, um, Thursday the fifth of July, I think it was, uh, Rick actually rang me up. I was in the operating theatre at, at uh, a hospital in Adelaide. Rick rang us up and, and said, look, I've got this little idea. What about the possibility of sedating these children to bring them out? Because at that stage, all the other options seemed to be, you know, hopeless, basically. They couldn't work out what to do. And Rick was quite despondent. They were actually thinking of leaving Thailand because they thought there's just no way these kids are coming out alive. Oh, God. Why would you have to sedate them so that they don't panic? Yeah. Once, I mean, that was hard for me to understand myself, to be honest. Yeah. And um, my, my response to Rick was very emphatic that that is just not an option. It's impossible to safely render someone sedated or unconscious and then submerge them for three hours to bring them out through this, this cave. Uh, and I reaffirmed our offer that maybe we could come over, perhaps as a doctor, you know, I could go to the end of the cave and render some medical assistance to these boys while the British and the Thais came up with a better plan than that one. Um, but the idea that they could swim out for three hours as untrained cave divers, as children, and in fact as kids who we were initially told couldn't even swim, 
was just appalling. I mean, we thought they they will panic and die, you know, within 10 minutes, let alone within three hours. So for them to come out, they had to come out underwater. So it wasn't even swimming above the water. No, there were sections which were like a river with air above, but there were long sections where they'd be completely submerged and having to dive. So they would be unconscious with breathing apparatus. If, if we went down that sedation route, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so tell me about your relationship and how you guys know each other. Craig, tell me about that. Uh, so we've been diving together for quite a long time, since about 2005, and we were aware of each other before that. Uh, we'd, we'd both been diving for, or cave diving for quite some years before, and the it's not a large group of people. And as you start doing more and more advanced dives, you become aware of other people Is that are around. Is it a dangerous around. sport? Well, you can die. Yep. So, so I suppose dangerous. in that sense. <laughs> but it's like so many of these things, if you have the correct training and you obey, the, there's some basic rules for mm-hmm. staying safe. If you do that, your equipment's good and you have a plan and you execute that plan, then generally it will be okay and if things go wrong it's almost without exception you've broken one of those basic rules or not followed safe do protocols. you think it's like an extreme sport does is it classified as that i know you're not going fast but is it dangerous to that level well i think if your definition of an extreme sport is that you can meet your end then yeah. i suppose it is yeah mm. I've never really understood the appeal of that. Uh, I'm very, very um, cautious and have both my feet firmly on the ground at all times. To the contrary, you know, if you couldn't die, then we probably wouldn't be that interested in it. Is that right? Wow. So you knew knew each other quite well then before this incident? Um, Yes, so we had an extensive history of of diving together, Uh, really particularly for the last 10 years or so, most of our big expeditions have been So, Richard, when you got this phone call, then did you call Craig and say, look, this is what we're looking at? Yeah, Craig and I had been talking offline about the possibility that we might get involved, so he was already in the mix, but uh, the call came through to me from Rick, so uh, as soon as I got that call, I was on the phone to Craig saying, I've just volunteered you Thailand I assume you don't mind and of course he didn't he was ready to go right there's the Qantas pilot that landed was it the QF 32 you know that mm-hmm. story yeah, I can't remember yep. to that's right and I remember when I read that book I was so astounded at the level of planning and strategy to land that plane like there was time constraints but the biggest amount of time was used to plan and figure out how that they were going to land that plane, and then that left very little time at the end to land it. And I'm, sure, you know, I'm sure you've read the book. Um, it, was it the same application? I mean, what do you do here? Because time is of essence. It isn't just about finding a solution, is it? It's finding a solution, and you've got hours on your hand. Yeah, it's a little bit different. So I'm a pilot as well and the situation is i'm just not liking the fact that you can do everything (laughs) oh far from it there's a long list of things that i still have you're a cave diver and the list continues yep um but aviation is is quite different to this situation that we're facing and although the qf32 story it was unknown for them as well i think you can draw that parallel 
but they uh, they also had some a collection of really good pilots, which was a very happy accident in that situation, and it was extremely fortunate. But on the contrary, with the... It was the tactics, though, that really intrigued me, the fact that so much of that was on planning. Uh, there is that, and also that this collaborative approach as well, that right, yeah. uh, you had different ideas coming from all the people that were in the, the cockpit, yeah. and everybody had something to contribute to that. Right. And without all of these contributions coming from all these different people, they probably would not have gelled into this successful plan. And I think our situation was like that somewhat, because we were fortunate to have some of the best cave divers in the world there, um, particularly Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, who had done the initial search for the boys. In, in I think, uh, both our opinions, they are the best in the world at yeah. this time. But it truly was a collaborative approach in that when we got to the site, we sat down and developed a plan and fine-tuned it. But there was still a lot of unknowns. And so tell me about the time constraints because you were working against the clock as well, weren't you? Oh, totally, because the yeah, monsoon the rains were yeah. coming yeah. and we'd been very fortunate that they'd held off despite this early start to the rains that had yeah. come a couple of weeks before they were expected. But when the rain started properly, and I can remember we were staying at a little hotel down the road and I can recall clearly lying in bed at night, uh, listening to the rain on the roof and really just wondering if that was the, the time that the rains came properly and that in the morning we'd go down to the cave, it would be flooded and there's no way we were going in there again. So this constant pressure to get the job done and get the boys out of there before yeah. the full flood arrived. And did you have a sense of how much time that was? Not really. It was expected any day. So you didn't know whether you had 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 no, hours? No, so there was a forecast that said at least we were okay for the next couple of days and that right. seemed to keep rolling forward for right. a couple of days at a time. But okay. we knew it couldn't last forever. There's another book that I've read and I can't recall the title, but it talks about the survival of a group, right? And it says that the survival of a group is dependent on whether somebody takes charge and that does... You know, like let's say it's a shipwreck, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the the captain, right? And it's really interesting because, say, for instance, the Lint Cafe, there was a young guy who was that. It was the young waiter who really took ch charge of the situation. And if you're following the theory of this this theory, it's that less people will perish if somebody takes control. How did that work out in your dynamics? What? How many of you were working on this, and who led it? I think there's certainly a book I've read called Who Will Live and Who Will Die. Is that the one, I perhaps? I think that's the book, yes. And it talks about survivors, who will survive in different types of crisis. So for us, uh, we were a very collaborative group of fairly disparate individuals from around the world who came together. How many all up? I think there were 14 cave divers, volunteers from different parts oh. of, the, of Thailand and UK, Europe, Australia. Oh. And... The, in a way, Rick Stanton was the unspoken leader because him and John were there at the start and they had the, the, the time on the ground, so they were best informed of the situation. 
But the group of cave divers who were assembled in the end all had plenty of credibility, you know, lots of mutual respect within the group. So there was no need for a, a leader really after that. And it's just one of these amazing examples of teaming when people come together from yeah. different places, different backgrounds, all with a very similar collective goal that was, you know, invested in the lives of these children. And I think, uh, you know, that's something I'm very proud of is to be part of that extraordinary team of people who... It's empowering, isn't it? Yeah, there was no ego, no chest beating. Everyone just got on with the job. There were some very robust discussions amongst the group about the best way to affect the plan. And initially, John and Rick, who had had, you know, all that time to think about it, presented a plan to us and the others about how they saw it happening. And we had some quite strong concerns and objections to different parts of that plan and to their credit instead of just saying well come on you blokes we've been here for a week you we know how this is best done they said oh okay well let's let's go back a step and tell us what you think and why you think our plan is not perfect yeah so i think that's a great credit to those guys that they could swallow their pride and hear a different point of view and maybe you know a fresh pair of eyes or two on on the scene were really valuable i think I think you're right. I think, of, uh, Richard, you alluded to the fact that it needs to be a team effort. And if you have one crack, I think that that's when problems start. But it seemed to me that, well, it wasn't seamless, but the plan was made and everybody stuck to it. Right? Absolutely. And we yeah. all had to believe in it, even yes. though there were grave concerns about the plan and, and the chances of it being successful. Once we all agreed to do it, we all committed ourselves 100% to it. So tell me what that was like. Richard, once you agreed to something, what was that like? So the plan came down to this anaesthetic plan and we had to... Dis- How many of you were anaesthetists? One. Yeah. That would be Just me. Just you. Yep. Right. Okay. Yep. But Craig, uh, having been a vet, obviously has done a lot of anaesthesia, although albeit in, in four-legged yep. people, not two-legged people. Still as valuable. So uh, <laughs> that, that, was, uh, that was very valuable experience and, and also using the same drug coincidentally so oh, ketamine right? ketamine yeah. is, is widely used in veterinary practice as well as in humans right so that was very reassuring to me to have um another anaesthetist essentially on the yeah. scene and it meant that we could use craig as someone to do another medical assessment down the line when the kids were going out through the cave but equally importantly to be there for the british divers who were taking these children out There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And to help talk them through their first injection. I mean, for these guys who have never even given an injection before, that's a that's a big mental hurdle for some of them. Oh, I mean, huge. Like you, some, you get there and then they're saying, we're going to knock you out now. I mean, that would, I mean, first, the situation is so distressing that these poor kids aren't thinking straight. And then you've hit them with a, another um 
a problem that is probably as big as the problem that they're in, really. Well, I think actually the kids were less distressed about this idea than most of us because by the time we presented this plan to the children, they were so desperate to be out of that cave that they would have agreed to anything. And, okay. and the looks on their faces, actually, as we explained what was going to happen the next day, they were completely accepting of it. They, they, there was no visible distress. They were just nodding their heads and thumbs up wow. as, as the Thai doctor, who was in the cave there as well by then, explained this plan in Thai. We were just watching their faces and they were remarkably calm. So how did you all get there, Craig? Uh, we all dived in. Yeah. Um, exactly the same. There's no other way to get in there. And how long so, does that take? Uh, it's about a couple of hours right. if you're not. So it was a three-hour journey out for the kids because it was a lot slower yeah. with taking a person. But if we're doing it by ourselves, yeah. uh, we were lucky that Rick and John during the initial search had laid this excellent guideline which was made of rope. And so in the difficult parts, you could... So they'd already been there and seen that. them and come back. And this was... So they would... They, got there on day nine and yeah. we didn't arrive until day 13 so right. four days later because there was no point us coming until yeah. we knew that the boys were actually safe and until yeah. that point in time really most people expected that they would just find bodies if anything at all right so all 14 of you went out how um, did that work uh, the divers on on the days of the rescue or, yeah yeah um so we all had different spots in yeah. the in the cave there were the four british divers that were allocated to swim the boys out harry went into chamber nine with the boys and he was doing the initial anesthetic i was located at chamber eight which is the next step back uh which another dry section of the cave so the boys went for an initial dive of about 300 metres. So was it a full anaesthetic, like mm -hmm. you were knocked out completely? Yep. Surgical anaesthesia level. So you're so, out. Yeah, yep. so asleep enough to do an operation on and them. And that had to last how many hours? Three hours. Wow. Okay. Gosh. But of course, each dose of the anaesthetic only lasted oh. half to three quarters of an hour, which is why we had to teach the British guys how to top up the anaesthetic. because they While were, they're swimming. Yeah, because they'd be taking each child out and it was a three-hour journey. So is that what happens in surgery? That's why the anaesthetist there? This is not a technique we would normally use for surgical anaesthesia, but right. um, the depth of the anaesthesia was equivalent. Uh, so we don't normally jab people in the leg and top them up with intramuscular injections during an operation. We, we give intravenous drugs or gases, and ketamine's only occasionally used in the operating theatre because it's got some quite undesirable side effects. But for this particular rescue... The attributes of ketamine far outweigh those negatives. Gosh, so they, I didn't realise that you'd be topping up as you go. So t talk me through that, Craig. Yeah, so the boys had an initial dive to go through of about 300 metres, so that took 15 or 20 minutes or so. Uh, then they came to this dry section in Chamber 8, so at that point they had to come out of the water, have all the dive gear taken off them, and be carried across... Because they're unconscious. Because uh, they're unconscious, that's right. Uh, be carried across this dry section of cave, uh, then put back in the water again, all the dive gear back on them. Uh, they had another dose of the anaesthetic. And at that point, because I was there, um, I was able to demonstrate how to do that and assess the level of anaesthesia to the British divers on the first day. From there, then they went on the final part of the swim all the way out. So with one single diver. And there were other of the, the European divers, they were located at various places on that swim out just to assist as wow. required. And were there any mishaps along the way? Uh, plenty. 
Plenty. fair to say. Tell um, me about some of them, Richard. Well, um, you know, this is always going to be fraught with peril and uh, a number of examples. So for a start, the, f- the last boy on the first day um, had a chest infection and so the, the interaction with, of that with the, the anaesthetic was... Uh, quite uh, difficult so he was holding his breath and not breathing sufficiently Uh, he stopped breathing at one stage and uh, almost required mouth-to-mouth resuscitation but then he started breathing by himself again just in time and then very quickly required more anaesthetic so he he was just swinging from over anaesthetised to under anaesthetised very difficult to control the levels and uh, so Rick Stanton who was taking that boy out had had a very stressful time of it on the way out uh, on another occasion, another diver, Jason Mellinson, had a boy wake up or start to wake up. I was up going under. to ask that. Do yeah, so none of the boys have any recollection, but right. you know, there's a there's a fair interval between starting to thrash around and starting to be aware of what's happening, which is good. Yeah. But uh, it meant that one of these boys started to wake up and thrash around underwater with Jason, and so he had to quickly scoot through to the next river section where there was air above the water and try and re-anaesthetise the boy. Now, unfortunately, there was no one else in that section to assist him. And so he was trying to do this by himself, get the drugs and syringes out of his pocket and accidentally let go of the boy who started floating down the river and then he drops all the syringes and they start to float away. So you can just imagine the the chaos. Um, And Jason, remarkable guy, very tough guy, very good diver. He managed to get it all back under control and sort it out before he took the kid through. Um, On another occasion, one of the British divers lost the line uh, in zero visibility water, spent 15 minutes essentially lost off the line with a child, uh, you know, who's supposed to be asleep, starting to rouse and he doesn't know where he is and, you know, with obvious potential consequences of being lost in a cave with a finite gas supply. So, yeah, there were lots of near misses, both for the boys and a few for the divers, so... It was by no means straightforward, and how this all succeeded, I have no idea, to be honest. Could you... I mean, you couldn't write about it, could you? Well, we have. (laughs) Well, good. (laughs) But, yeah, you couldn't make a... We've often thought that if somebody came to you and said, I've written this story, or here's a a script, we would say, nah, that's too far-fetched. You have to tone it down a bit and make it a bit more realistic. Because you wouldn't believe it. Oh, that's crazy, the whole thing. I mean, to me, it just seems so out of this world. At the end of the day, so after hours and hours, you've got them all. Did it take a day? Three days. Three days yeah, to four get four on the first day, four on the second day, and five on the final day. And where were you guys in all of it? Were you doing the, some of the transportation? No, we, we had our place in the cave, me at yeah. the far end, Craig, one, one section back from the far end. Right. And we would swim out at the end of each day to find out whether any of those boys for the day had survived or not. And it was more the thought that I wonder if anyone has survived rather than how many have survived. Wow. Um, so, yeah, swimming But out. they all survived. Yes. So on the third and final day, we, we appear back at Chamber 3, the final you know destination where the diving essentially finishes, to be told that so far, so well, that they're all, they're all alive and they've all survived and on their way to hospital. And tell me, what did that feel like? That felt... Pretty good, really, not knowing. Because we'd swum out and it had taken that two-hour interval for us to come out on that first day and nothing really to think about. Our, our job for the day was done, so we just had to get to the outside to see what had happened. For that two hours, 
we were really thinking about nothing other than what's the reception going to be like and what's been the result of the day's activities and not knowing. So getting back to Chamber 3 and I popped my head up out of the water, um, took my mask off and I asked the guys that were there, I said, did any of them survive? And happily they were able to say, yes, everybody's in hospital, they're all waking up and everything is fine. I remember following the story. It seemed like a miracle that you guys pulled it off. It really did. Well, nobody is more surprised than us to this <laughs> day, really, right. looking back on it. And it's easy to just think, well, that was a thing that happened. But you forget about the pressure and uncertainty that was there at the time. And just this conviction that we had that what we were trying was a nigh on impossible. And we had no real confidence at all. That we would get so you didn't think of calling Elon Musk? Um, <laughs> we didn't, we didn't need to. He, he was right on it. <laughs> That's right. It's interesting, I think. it's. I mean, to me, one of the, the greatest outcomes is, you know, of course, that all the boys survived. Um, but the other is that, you know, humans are amazing because really it's very little technology, isn't it, that you did this on? Well, what I'm... You know, very proud of is the fact that this this group of middle aged nerds from around the world who have got this strange yeah. hobby came yeah. together to effect a rescue. Highly complex situation that the most highly trained military forces from around the world were unable to perform. So, mm. to me, that just says that uh, you know there's definitely room in life for the for the enthusiast, which is all we are. We're just enthusiastic yeah. about this slightly odd hobby. And um, and no so computers involved. No I computers. Mean, pretty much, you worked it out. Very low tech scuba tanks yeah. and a rope yeah. and uh, yeah. swim them out and a yeah. good old fashioned anaesthetic drug called ketamine. Yeah, and that was it. And so you know, I mean, they're great minds, aren't they? Well, two great minds right here. Um, so then you decided you were going to tell your story. Did you decide to do this together? I mean, how? Craig was initially the most uh, keen. He was very keen to say, let's get this down on paper as a factual account. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's our version of the truth because everyone in that rescue, and remember there's 10,000 people involved at one point, so everyone will have a different viewpoint Absolutely. from inside, outside the cave, wherever yeah. they were. So this is our our point of view of the story. And, um, you know, we knew that with the fullness of time, the story would get diluted or Holly would get hold of it and there would be an alien and a car chase involved then. And, <laughs> So, you know, it was. Um, I was very easily convinced that this was a great idea to get this down on, on paper as our version of the events. Because mm. historically, it's, it's really recording history, isn't it? Well, there's certainly nothing like this that has ever happened before. No. Um, it's only the third cave diving rescue that's that we can find out about and we've researched it pretty hard and the other two were nowhere near the scale of this you know they were remarkable in themselves but relatively minor and and simple extractions compared to this and particularly doing the anaesthetic it's underwater it's unbelievable um i want to just like so you went back to see the boys at some point? Tell mm-hmm. me what that was like. Oh, that was that was great. We went back in April of this year, so that was nine months after the rescue itself. Mm. Uh, everybody had had a bit of time to reflect and we'd had these and recover, curious developments yeah. in our lives in the meantime. Um, but it was great to go back and, and see the boys. We spent a morning with them. Um, we had some questions to ask them. Did they have questions for you? I, not not really so much, I don't think. Uh, that's, I mean, the story was 
was well known to them. But there were a few things and really in particular wanted to know how they'd felt at the time about the situation they were in and the risks of the extraction. And when we asked them that question, the only answer they had was, well, we trusted you and so we thought everything would be okay, which sent shivers down our spines uh, because it really, it it says to me anyway, that they had no idea about the risk and uh, that they were operating on false confidence, but maybe that was the best way. Well, I think, I mean, if that was me, I would want false confidence the whole way. I don't really need to know what's really happening. Um, And when people are looking down the barrel like they were, they they can't make any decisions of any, you know, certainly no. no informed decisions for themselves. They just look to the people who are there well, holding, they holding their exhausted. hand out to rescue them yeah. and they'll say, yep, yeah, just look after us. We, tr- you, know, we yeah. trust you. You want to trust people in that situation. Well, of course, and they would have been dehydrated and everything else. Okay, in terms of working on a project together, I mean, wow, you've pulled that project off and then you've written a book together. Which one was harder? Hmm. Well, the book, the book took a little longer, that's for sure. Fortunately, we had the expert assistance of our co-writer, Ellis yeah. Hennigan, who was amazing to work with. He's such a great storyteller, really wonderful guy. The only problem with him, of course, being American, we had to change a bit of the vernacular to make it a bit more Aussie-fied. Yes. Uh, but he was, he was great, smart guy, really good storyteller and a lot of fun to work with. So we enjoyed the process. Well, yeah. I did. Enjoy it, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's the next project for you two? Oh, we're just going to get through the rest of this year, I think. And <laughs> so you're not going to be starring in the film? Uh, we will most certainly not be starring in the oh, films. No, shucks, there's, there's I think a, you should audition. There's a very clear proposition that <laughs> if they want a cave rescue done, they come to us. If yeah. we want a movie made, we go to Hollywood right, um, okay. or wherever else that we might talk Do about. Do you pinch yourselves sometimes and just think, well, I mean, it's a kind of a culmination of a career, you know. It's it's a pinnacle. It's you know, um, and even though it was tragic circumstances, the result was so fantastic. Do you kind of wake up in the morning sometimes and think, I did that? We actually had a conversation this morning just about what is happening now with this. You know, here we yeah. are. We're, we're promoting a book. Um, we're touring around the country, speaking to all these amazing people. Thank and, you, <laughs> including yourself, of course. And um, we just had a little reality. Reality mm. check this morning saying, you know, what, what is going on? What is going <laughs> it's, it's on? fabulous. And are you still working? Uh, a little bit. A, a little, little bit. bit. I yeah. do. Because I, I don't want to be under and then you say, sorry, I have to go. I have to take no, this No, no, well, I won't walk out in the middle of an operation, I oh, promise. Oh, that's but, good. Um, yeah. No, I've, I do, I'm doing a couple of sessions a week at the most at the moment. So enough to keep my hand in, but I think I've got some decisions to make over the next couple of months, you know. Am I going to go back to being a doctor, which you can't really dabble in, especially in my no. specialty, you're either in it or you're out of it. Yeah. Or am I going to pursue pursue this amazing new life that has given a lot of opportunities to both of us, you know, yeah. talk of, um, you know, documentaries and, and the book and so forth. And so lots of exciting ideas being bandied around and we're, well, I'm certainly always up for a new adventure and I've been a doctor for a long mm-hmm. time now, so... Mm-hmm. You know, not many people get this amazing opportunity to turn over a new leaf and head off in a different direction. It's so, incredible. So yeah. I'm just thinking it through, not rushing into anything, but we'll see, yeah. what, see what happens. And what about you? 
very keen to get back to some cave diving. <laughs> There's <laughs> yeah. not been much of it going on this right. uh, this year. Um, happily, we remain confident that the caves will still be there next year. Yes. We'll be very badly disappointed if that turns out not to be true. No. Um, but we don't want to forget it about was, the main game. So would that be your greatest passion? Oh, I would think so, yeah. I've got a few other hobbies as well, but uh, like definitely flying, cave diving like is, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> I've got to tell you, two very talented guys, Craig and Richard, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Great <laughs> talking to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape Imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.